Hello and welcome everyone to episode 27 of the Apt EVs podcast. I'm your host, Chris Rogers. And while this episode would usually focus on the Aptera news for the period between September 5th and September 11, 2021, this week's episode is going to be a little different. Today's episode features a special guest, Michael Wu, who is both a close friend of mine and someone who is also focused on the clean energy transition, albeit in an area that many people don't realize is very relevant. That is the Department of Defense as well as municipal governments. Michael recently hosted an event discussing EVs and the Department of Defense, and he was kind enough to spend some time talking with me about Aptera and providing some insight into this potential market. Uh, I hope you all enjoy the, the, this conversation, and so take a listen. All right, and welcome to the Apt EVs podcast. Um, I hope everyone had a great week. And this week's episode is a, a special episode. We have a special guest, Michael Wu, who is the principal and co-founder of Converge Strategies, which is focused on the intersection of clean energy, resilient, and uh, national security. You're also the executive director of the Resilient Infrastructure and Secure Energy Consortium, or, or the, the the Rise Consortium. Um, Mike and I have have known each other since going back to the the law school days, and he kindly agreed to come on to the podcast to talk about the greatest electric vehicle of at least the last two years, possibly the last last ten. So I, I appreciate him coming on to to talk about Aptera. A lot of the work that that he does focuses on state entities and the Department of Defense which actually there there is a a lot more intersection with the the hyper efficient focus of Aptera than folks might realize and so i i want to kick things off with with this interview and slash conversation that we're having with mike you recently hosted an event that was part of the rise consortium that was called the future of electric vehicles for department of defense which covered a lot of really interesting topics that intersect i think with themes that we've discussed on this podcast one of your your guests, the president of the Electric Drive Transportation Association, Genevieve Cullen, um, mentioned that the electric vehicle market has grown in a lot of ways. That there's been a lot of diversification, which really describes what we've seen with Aptera. And so, my my first question for you was, you know, had you heard of Aptera before I mentioned the company? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, and let me just say it's an honor to be uh, the first guest on the Apt EVs podcast, though I'm sure certainly not the last. Uh, so I had never heard of this car before uh, you told me you had started a podcast about this car. Um, so obviously I was pretty intrigued. Um, and it's a cool car. And I think there are a lot of interesting uh, implications of this car coming to market and of this car being developed. Uh, but for, for a lot of different uses, I mean, obviously they're targeting, you know, some, uh, a commercial market, but I think there's a, some really intriguing fleet vehicle implications that we can get into. Um, and that's something that's really exciting to me as somebody who's, who's focused on, um, you know, one of the larger vehicle fleets in the country, the department of defense has a, um, what they call non-tactical vehicle fleet of about 160,000 vehicles of the 600,000 vehicles 
uh, that currently work for the federal government. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. And you know, I just briefly, I, I wanted to, I, I want to come, I want to come back to that that point on the non-tactical vehicle fleet and what that means for the Aptera market. That's been something that's that it's the the company Aptera talks about on their own website when they're anticipating what is the what is the market for this vehicle. It, it's something that people you'll see online when people will see the car the car looks very unique very distinct and and people will say who's going to buy this who's who's the market who's that market for and and you mentioned you know in the department of defense there's there's a significant fleet of vehicles that you know they're therefore transporting people around bases they're therefore a wide range of I, I imagine activities and and so it, I, I guess the, the, you know, the, the first question there, um, well, once I want to get to the, the market, but be honest, you saw the vehicle for the first time, three-wheel design, open, open-wheel open design. Um, um, uh, someone I know I'm very close to refers to it as the lobster car. What did you think when you, f- you first saw the images of the vehicle? I mean, it seemed like the future, but maybe from you know, what we envisioned the future in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, you look back and see the concept cars from back then, and they're all focused. They they all look sort of like that, right? Like they all look, um, you know, to maximize, uh, you know, slip ratio and air efficiencies and things like that. And so um, it's not surprising to me that those uh, that aerodynamics haven't changed that much, and we we should be seeing cars that look like that and have that kind of capability. Um, but I like how Aptera is really, feels like it's pulling out all the stops to that. It's it's really focused on how do we make the most efficient car that is commercially accessible, that is uh, in many ways extremely practical. So that's exciting. You know, it, it's funny that you say that it, it looks futuristic in its design. I don't. I don't know if I. I probably haven't mentioned this to you, um, and uh, I think folks in the Aptera community know this. But one of the, one of the uh, maybe the most high-profile moments of the the company when it initially started back in 2006 is that an Aptera featured in the first Star Trek reboot movie. Um, and I know you're you're a Star Trek guy, and so you can appreciate that. But they they literally they put it. It's in the, it's in a background scene. It's just going by because you know they're looking for a futuristic vehicle. And I guess the the people who were making the movie they they saw that and they're like yeah we we you know that that's they they literally said this is what the the future of transportation could look like and and so I, I think you're 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 right on the 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 money there um, I want I want to take it back you know talking just touching a little bit more on the market one of your your guests on the Rise Consortium webinar. I think he mentioned that there were, and, and this might have been just for a specific branch, I think there's 160,000 non-tactical vehicles in the Department of Defense fleet, and you know, that's sedans, minivans, half-ton ton trucks. I guess, do you, you know, for a, a car that's a, a two-seater, you know, there's there's 25 cubic feet of, of space, so this is not, right now, this version, this Roadster, it's not a very large vehicle, you know, and I guess both in 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 understanding maybe a little bit about what the vehicle fleets are for the Department of Defense, but then also for other state entities, do you think that there is a, a role for for smaller vehicles? I, I don't know how much you know the subcompacts are are used on, 
on either basis, like either domestic or, or abroad or anything like that? I don't know what your thoughts there. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think there's some important uh, sort of underlying things to understand underlying concepts about what that vehicle fleet it consists of. And you're right, it consists of a, a huge diversity of vehicles, um, you know, from sedans to, you know, half ton trucks to, um, you know, things like ground support equipment that are um, servicing aircraft. But, but a lot of them are sedans. Um, and the thing about military bases uh, is they don't, you know, those cars don't go very far. They uh, don't need to go very fast and they return to the same place every time um, and on very set schedules. And so, you know, in many ways that makes them the ideal fleet vehicle. What we do today is all of those cars are leased from the General Services Administration um, and, they're, and they're all sort of run of the mill commercial cars. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity because you're using these vehicles, you know, the stat for everybody is your, your car is um, sitting uh, unused for what, 95% of its, of its life. You know, that is this, if more, even more so with um, some of these non-tactical vehicles within DOD. And so, you know, there's a huge missed opportunity when you look at a military base and, and military bases, Chris, are the only places in America where nobody speeds because everybody's terrified of getting a ticket, which actually will force you to go to court and um, and, and deal with uh, a lot more headaches than you otherwise would. So you so there's a huge missed opportunity, I think, in just treating, you know, those vehicles, the, those sedans that are on post, um, just like you would like their, you know, Toyota Camrys, their Ford Escorts, their, their, their cars that are not necessarily purpose built for the kinds of uses that they, that, that take place on a military base. And I think that's something that's really exciting about the Aptera model. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, in the other component of that, which, you know, not just it's, you know, the, the range of the vehicle, 250 miles at the low end and 1000 miles at the, the highest end. And so, you know, if you're not going the long range, you know, that, that helps. But the other component of that is the integration of solar. If you do the full solar package, if you're in a sunny area, you're looking at maybe around 45 miles or more of charging a day. And so when you're talking about a vehicle that that's sitting in the same place for 95% of the time, you know, if you're if you're talking in the further to, for these military bases, if it's as as long as it's an unshaded area where you have that, you could in effect you could just completely eliminate your your refueling costs for you know for a not insignificant amount of, of vehicles and you know you're also you know if, if you're if you're not going you know uh, you know super high speeds you know you, you could you're preserving the, the battery in ways that you that you otherwise wouldn't so you're going to get like better range out of that and so yeah I, I could imagine that that would be that would be really really appealing and even on some of these larger bases it you know there's some stats on uh the F.E. Warren Air Force Base, which, you know, apparently covers 10, you know, um, it was like 10,000 square miles. And there's a facility that's 150 miles away. And, you know, for most EVs that are on the market right now, you know, 
that's that's maybe 80% of of its capacity and its range for aptera that's you know that that's a significant amount of its low end range but if you get the the 400 mile variant you know that that's that's your your transportation your your interbase transportation just just knocked out right there so i i i could see that yeah and and you know the the reason fe warren covers such a large area is those are all missile silos Okay, so they so they have a tremendous amount of distance between them, but military bases come in all shapes and sizes. Um, you know, there's uh, a base in Michigan uh, that uh, Detroit Arsenal, which is you know just a a couple hundred acres, um, and in compare is it, it's a relative postage stamp. But the point is, you know, this is a vehicle that might be able to meet both of those needs. And then the the second thing you said about how you the solar package i think that's really important about that is that could alleviate a lot of the concerns that you heard on on the webinar that we did around um vehicle charging infrastructure and some of the um requirements that will be added to what are already outmoded somewhat poorly maintained decrepit uh distribution systems, electric distribution systems on base. And so I think between those things, there's a there's a real value proposition that you should be, that Aptera should be considering and, and finding opportunities to um, sort of insert its concepts and technology um, for validation for these kinds of uses. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a great segue to something I wanted to talk to you about, upgrading the charging infrastructure. You know, yeah, it's maybe a, a month ago. I feel like you know the the weeks are flying by. Uh, President Biden recently, you know, he, he talked about you know there there's a plan for the infrastructure upgrades, and he's talking about dramatically increase the number of high speed charging um, points. Which, if you're an electric vehicle enthusiast, that sounds great. That's fantastic. But what I think a lot of people don't don't really internalize, um, there is a line that I really liked from the webinar, which is three or, or, or four 350 kilowatt charging stations is the equivalent of, of a small hospital being built somewhere. And so if, not just the military base, if you're talking about cities across the America, in order to have sufficient charging infrastructure to, to accommodate this, this growing market of electric vehicles, we're talking about adding charging components on our grid that you know, forget just the, the cost of the, you know, the components themselves. That, that's a significant amount of strain that's going to require a lot of careful planning so that, you know, th because there are more and are less efficient ways that we can do it. And where Aptera comes in there is, you know, if, it, if it's charging itself, um, one, it requires less charging. So, you know, it's, it's less of a, a deal. But also, um, because it's, it's so light and efficient and it gets because it, it, it goes much further with a smaller amount of charge than other standard EVs, it actually can get by with a, a standard 110 volt outlet in a way that a regular EV can't. And so, you know, you, although we should be upgrading our infrastructure to accommodate all range and, and types of electric vehicles, if you only had a, a 50 kilowatt charger for, for an Aptera, that's going to give you a meaningful amount of range in a few hours in a way that you know like the the new hummer ev is like maybe going to get like four miles or something like that and, and you know that that's that was something that that was both talked out and, and i'm curious about 
you know, what do you think the, the implications there for, for state entities as well as the, the DOD with a vehicle that, that maybe eliminates the need to, to, to build these, these new chargers and, and uh, you know, and, and what kind of cost savings you could see from that? I think it's incredibly important. I think everything that you just described about the strain that we're bringing to an already incredibly fragile electric grid. I mean, look around you. You know, we've had more severe impacts to the electric grid this year um, than than in recent memory. And in the last five years, just think about the accumulation of power disruptions. We're simply living in an era where access to electricity can't be presumed, can't be assumed. And so something that provides that level of efficiency and level and, and, and access, accessible resource um, is going to be incredibly valuable um, as, as we transition, right? Like the, the Biden administration has been very clear, 500,000 new electric vehicle chargers all across the nation, um, electrifying those 600,000 um, vehicles across the federal fleet. Uh, making new investments in electrifying the um, the DoD's tactical vehicle fleet and, and, and investing in new platforms and things like that. So, so there's an incredible focus on electrifying everything that in order to address our climate crisis, um, but we need to think about the resilience and security implications of those investments and ensure that we're um, doing them in a way that you said was careful plan and again enshrines resilience and security as as first principles of that transition because if the system doesn't work um we we simply can't create new reliances and dependencies through electrifying everything that causes you know more trouble than um than it brings value so i want to take things a little bit more high level from there is you bring up some some really interesting points you know i'm you know, the, there is there's been a a fairly dramatic push from the Biden administration for electric vehicles, and I'm I'm curious about your opinion on on I guess on the conversations that you're having with both state entities and the DoD side. Do you do you think that this transition to EVs is do you think this is this push has been meaningful, and do you think this is going to be a a relatively quick transition or more, or more gradual one? Because there you. you You've you've kind of touched on there are some pretty significant barriers in terms of of um, of critical infrastructure in terms of you know the charging infrastructure. Um, our vehicles are it, especially electric vehicles tend to be high tech devices and, and so that makes them you know when you have an interconnect internet capable connected device you know that introduces like new like vulnerabilities and you know there's a whole validation period there's a you know there's a hardening period where you're like well can we use this new piece of the, of equipment if you if you shut down all the chargers in say columbus ohio that's a national security risk and and i imagine people are thinking about that and and i wonder if that if that gets in the way of the transition yeah i mean well so i think people are just waking up to the risk i we've already had a ransomware attack that disrupted uh you know liquid fuel access to most of the southeast and mid-atlantic in the colonial pipeline attack so it's not that we we are adding new levels of risk. We may be adding new levels of risk because we're talking about, as you mentioned, um, more and more connection um, over communications networks. But but it's not like we're riskless today. And um, 
so and I do think that this transition is going to happen very dramatically once we reach an inflection point. And I know we're facing this chicken and egg challenge around um, adding electric vehicles and adding uh, electric vehicle support equipment or charging infrastructure. But I think what's happening is this administration is investing in the infrastructure that it can control as consumer tastes and interests are changing as well. And so I think we're going to, there, there's an aphorism that goes, um, you know, we always overestimate what we can do in a decade, or sorry, we always overestimate what we, what we can do in a year, and we always underestimate what we can do in a decade. And I think we're going to hit an inflection point where it feels like there's not enough action happening and we're, um, you know, always behind the eight ball. But then very quickly, we're going to see a dramatic shift in the cars that you see around you every day, um, which will be overwhelmingly electrified, I think, in the next decade, in the next 15 to 18 years. Yeah, I think that's, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm certainly, as someone who's concerned about the climate and the clean energy transition, I, I'm certainly hoping that's, that's the case. And, and I, I really like the point about, you know, adding risks versus, you know, people just acknowledging for the first time that the risk exists. You know, I think there's there's a lot of fear mongering that occurs with electric vehicles, whether it's related to to battery fires, um, when you know people are walking around carrying the, the same devices in their their pockets every day, and they're not worried about those as bombs. But when it's an electric vehicle, you know they're they're not looking at the stats in terms of the number of fires, and 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 you know we we are facing critical infrastructure ch- challenges and threats to to traditional fossil fuels and those those same threats face electric vehicles and and just because you know there's a tablet screen in in your tesla doesn't mean that it's more vulnerable than the tablet screen in your ford f-150 that's not the the lightning version and so i i think that's that it's a point well taken that it's something that that all government entities need to be need to be taking into to account um i'm i'm also curious about you know if we if we're making this transition you know what sort of opportunities do you think will result in for example you mentioned the the leasing through gsa there's a five-year leasing term with an ev there's no oil change you know there's 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 less moving parts there's you know there, there's less maintenance aptera itself um you know they i saw something from them recently online where they're hoping for a 50-year lifespan for for their vehicles that is upgradable in a way and I'm, I'm curious if you think that that's going to change kind of how how state entities and the dod thinks about the equipment that it, it's procuring in terms of you know the the cost like if if you only need to procure every eight years or ten years instead of every five i wonder if there's other things that you see as we transition to evs that'll 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 present new opportunities for for dod and other actors yeah for sure i mean i think when you look at those kinds of decisions that are made fleet-wide, costs are the driving factor. And people look at the Department of Defense as, you know, a, a, as an incredibly well-funded, and it is incredibly well-funded. It's a huge budget item. It's obviously, um, you know, a, a huge part of the U.S. budget. But that money doesn't go to things like the non-tactical vehicle fleet, um, where they're incredibly sensitive 
to costs and really interested within the entire you know installation support community everything that happens on your military bases the driving factor behind a lot of those decisions is cost and so i do think that if you can demonstrate over the lifespan of a vehicle those kinds of maintenance um, and other cost um, drops that's gonna that's gonna speak to the department and obviously um, what is required from a bureaucratic perspective is a shift in the way we actually think about those costs and we actually incorporate and internalize those costs i'll give you a, a separate example that's very much um, along the same line so on a lot of critical department of defense facilities um, they you know the department overall pays very low prices for electricity um, across across the country for a number of different reasons um, but they don't th those budgets are paid out of a utility budget and on critical department of defense facilities where they have diesel generators as backups you know those costs aren't incorporated as a part of what the department's paying for energy those costs are paid out of different accounts and so when you ask the department what they pay for energy or what they pay for energy resilience, the ability to maintain critical operations during disruptions, um, they don't necessarily incorporate those costs of a diesel generator, the costs of the fuel for the diesel generator, the costs of maintaining the man hours, maintaining those diesel generators. And so you don't have an all-in view like you would with a business. A business, you know, large corporations that are making fleet decisions like FedEx or Amazon are making those, I think, in a more informed way than the department because they don't have these kinds of siloed budgets. And so we need to change the way we think about doing business in order to ensure that those kinds of benefits that you described around maintenance are incorporated and that we actually see um, as a department overall what those benefits really are all in. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point because you're looking at Aptera the the lowest price version is twenty five thousand nine hundred dollars for a two hundred fifty mile range, which which comp compares favorably with pretty much every non Tesla and soon non Lucid electric vehicle that that's on the market right now. That that's that's doing well. And if you really splurge, you go up to around forty five k, and you're talking about a thousand miles, which is which is a, a comical comical range. It's made out of composite materials that don't rust that are going to withstand a lot more harsher conditions a lot better than a lot of other vehicles the entire body or chassis is made up of seven parts itself there's very few parts that that go into that and they design it in a way that it's easily upgradable and repairable and you think about the cost there that you can do and in my mind i'm like oh you know this seems like a no-brainer for for fleets across the country but if if the people who are who are adding up the costs, you know, they you know they're only looking at maybe forty percent of what they're spending on 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 the vehicles, you know, that there's not the same kind of in incentive there. I want to talk about another big benefit of EVs, which is vehicle to grid, which is something that like a lot of people talk about. Um, you know, do you think that that you know, I feel like a vehicle to grid requires a lot of very careful planning, careful grid planning. But you know, if you've got a, a self-contained mini grid on on a base, you could completely shave off 
the the peak load of that that facility with with the right vehicle integrated technology and that's not even counting a solar integrated aptera which is which is really adding more into there and so do, do you see see real potential or is that are there a lot of conversations that, that you've been part of where state entities have been talking about that and there's real interest there yeah so i i used to work for the air force and they did some of the earliest um vehicle to grid um work uh, actually some pilots at la air force base um back in the 2014 to 2016 um time frame and uh it's a there's a lot of challenges associated with vehicle to grid as you mentioned i think there is no better example of places in which vehicle to grid could work than department of defense installations for the same reasons that we just described um because you've got vehicles that don't travel very far don't travel very fast and um and and return to the same place on pretty set schedules and so um you know that is i think for from most folks sort of the dream vehicle to grid but there were still a lot of challenges associated with it you know you've got to come up with you know ways to do vehicle scheduling that are uh, easy to use for users ensure that you accomplish the primary mission of the vehicle which is to drive places um, but also are providing that resource back to the grid i was curious about um when, when you talk about vehicle to grid from your perspective with aptera you you mentioned sort of the smaller capacity of the batteries um, because of the efficiency of the vehicle itself and doesn't that cut against you know using those vehicles as a as a grid resource and aggregating them as a grid resource I think what makes the Aptera a viable option is that they're so efficient that the average user is going to use a smaller percentage of their battery, even with a, a smaller battery. So the smallest battery is a 25 kilowatt hour battery, but then you go the next biggest, it's it's 40 kilowatt hours, which is still really small for a mainline EV, but 60 kilowatts, that's, that's what you're seeing basically in a, a Model 3 or a Model Y. All of those are going to be using you know, daily user is going to be using a, a fraction of that. You know, anyone who gets one of the larger, I think, uh, Aptera versions, it, they're just never going to be using their, their full battery. And like a, a 60 kilowatt hour, the 100 kilowatt hour, you know, there's going to be a lot of capacity and potentially, it, it's basically a, a moving storage, you know, facility is, is how you could, you can imagine, you know, a fleet of 20 Apteras that's an in incredible amount of, of storage potential. Well, Chris, yeah, I think one of the things that you described um, that that's really important as we electrify fleets within the government, as we electrify electrify fleets across the nation, you know, we are creating an increased reliance on the electric grid for our transportation sector. We're, we're, we're purposely coupling those things. Um, and I think a part of any solution um, and any sort of future state of the of, of those sectors has to envision that coupling going both ways, where the resources that you've created with all of these electric vehicles and you describe them as mobile storage devices, which I think is exactly right. We have to invest in ways that can aggregate those different sources, whether it's in whether it's on a military base or in a neighborhood, um, because we're gonna be investing in huge renewable, utility scale renewable um, generation plants that are 
you know, possibly dozens, hundreds of miles away and relying on transmission. So the clean energy future that um, I think most of us envision involves both those big utility scale renewable energy and zero carbon sources, but also a lot more localized control and a lot more nuanced and localized understanding of how the electric grid operates in a neighborhood or in you know, a, a sector of a city. And I think that's going to be incredibly important moving forward. Um, again, in order to ensure that the system works, even if you've got disruptions um, more frequent and, and more severe. Yeah, it, it, it you know, the, the more you look into vehicle to grid, the more you realize that 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 should be a, a focus of grid planners everywhere. When when they're thinking about electric vehicles, they should be they should be really thinking about how they're going to take advantage of the opportunity. There was a, a study by the Pacific Northwest National Lab that that showed it was a relatively small number of electric vehicles are required to to completely shave off uh, the, the the peak load in a a mar- large or moderately sized city. And so you've, you've got all these basically Tesla power walls that, that are going around, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, one of the challenges in that study, which I think the, the Department of Defense is maybe uniquely positioned to address is that, you know, when you're talking about a, a city, you know, you've got, a, it's a city full of individuals, you know, they're not all there for the, the same thing. When you're talking about coming up with a, a system that that figures out you know smart charging infrastructure when they need to go on when they need to go out like how how to fully you know balance the grid when it's, it's a city full of people you, you have to basically plan for everything you're talking about a military base you know you mentioned before you know it's the only place in america where no one speeds you could literally you, 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 it could just be the rule it you know the you know the, a military base can say like there is charging from this time to this time you know they could put up a, a a chart on the wall where you need to figure out whether or not you could do that and you could you could enforce that in a way that that you you couldn't do yeah i i could see from that perspective why why vehicle to grid would be even even more attractive and I, and i think that the other part of your point that's really important about that uh, and, and drawing from that PNNL study is we're not talking necessarily about um, huge amounts of electricity. We're talking about uh, things like frequency regulation. We're talking about demand response on a relatively small scale paying off at the most important and most expensive times. And so I think, you know, you get to the point when you do the math pretty quickly of vehicle to grid makes a ton of sense from a financial perspective. The challenge is obviously, and of course, in implementation, in redesigning and rethinking an electric grid that was not designed to be two-way, to be able to, um, as you mentioned, balance, the the way I always think about is electricity is the only commodity that's produced and consumed at the speed of light. And so how do you um, ensure that you can maintain that balance? And and it's going to start with those fleets. Vehicle to grid is not going to make sense for um, your everyday consumer right away. It's going to start with vehicle fleets that are predictable, that you can have a workforce um, that can be um, that can use an app to ensure that the vehicle scheduling that you're doing um, is responsible um, and everything like that. And so, I think that's where it starts. 
Um, and as we get more robust software solutions, as we get uh, more widespread electric vehicle infrastructure, then we can have a conversation about, well, we should be optimizing and totally reimagining the way we consider and use electricity um, in, in ways that help us address, you know, help us balance the grid priorities, help us address the climate crisis more fully, um, and help us use um, those moving storage devices uh, as much as they can be used, squeezing every ounce of value we can out of those. Yeah, when you're talking about it from a, a grid planning perspective, you know, there there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of debate that goes on about the appropriate levels of what what is the right technology for baseload generation, you know, uh, long-term generation storage, or excuse me, um, for for our, our grids. But when you when you're talking about peak loads and, and peaking power plants, you know, that I think I think that debate has, has basically been been settled. You just, storage could could basically uh, eliminate all peaking power plants uh, across the country. You know, these are power plants that are only on for for less than an hour at a time they're the dirtiest plants they are there there's been a lot of research and, and studies that really tragically show how much air pollution and thus you can connect that to to deaths and hospitalizations just from these peaking power plants that with battery storage don't need to turn on at all you know they're they're, they're very short very short and you're talking about ancillary services such as, as balancing frequency control and if there's a way to tap into that from electric vehicles, I mean, people are are buying them themselves. You know, they're you know they're doing the work on on behalf of, of utilities. You know, there, there's you know we we've got to find a way to to tap into that because it it will it will save lives. It, it's a a meaningful goal. It's it's not just a you know it it will save a lot of money and, and costs in long term. You know, you can reduce a lot of strain a lot of ways, but it, it's we're, we're also talking about talking about lives here um you know the 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 last bit of technology i wanted to talk to you about um is something that aptera is talking about doing which is autonomous driving it the the aptera is planned to be a level two autonomous vehicle which means that you know it'd be able to do you know i think basic lane keep and and assist i think it'd be able to navigate the functions it's essentially what everyone thinks of what a tesla can do right now and i'm curious about it, about any conversations that you've had with the DOD and other state entities about vehicle autonomy and, and, and what added potential that has for fleets as well. Yeah, I mean, I think f from one perspective, the, the Department of Defense is obviously extremely interested in um, autonomy for any number of vehicle platforms. Obviously, um, remotely piloted aircraft have been used for decades um, within the department at this point. <laughs> But also um, ground vehicle autonomy is something um, that I think they've made huge investments in and, and a lot of technological breakthroughs in. Um, so that's obviously top of mind for what kinds of um, capabilities the department is interested in. And I'm talking about from a weapon systems and platforms perspective, a tactical vehicle perspective. I think the other part um, that's really interesting is just you know, upending the model of personal car ownership um, so that we're thinking about, uh, again, squeezing every ounce of um, value out of these resources. You know, you can envision a future in which um, your car, your your car is 
uh, actually um, used as a ride-sharing device in that 95% of the time that you're not in it and driving. And I think that's what's really exciting and inspiring to me is personal car ownership, let's be honest, you know, doesn't really make sense as a business model. Um, we have made the, um, the decisions to invest in it as a, you know, understanding of personal autonomy, but um, what we what we need to transition to now, which is clear, is that we need to transition to a more efficient approach. Um, the department has done a lot of um, sort of cutting edge autonomous vehicle demonstrations on its installations. Um, there was um, they've got an autonomous shuttle bus uh, it, at Joint Base um, Meyer in uh, right around DC. Um, there's uh, a lot of potential for different uses for autonomous vehicles on bases that I think will be really helpful and important. But ultimately, like what are we driving to with vehicle autonomy? I mean, it's reducing deaths, like you pointed out, it's saving lives because um, you know these uh, vehicle, the autonomous vehicles will be safer and i think evidence would uh would would say they already are safer than uh than people driving but then it's again it's squeezing every ounce of value you can out of those vehicles um reducing the overall number of vehicles really helping folks especially in in urban areas um be able to live without a car um and that's really what i think we're talking about here as we move to a more sustainable approach to our transportation sector. Yeah, there's, I think there's, there's a, a wide range of, of uses and, and applications. I think, I think safety is really the, the, the biggest key for, for, for vehicle autonomy because, and an autonomous vehicle, even one that's not full level five minority report level autonomy can, I mean, it, they, they can see things that, that people can't, you know, they're, you know, we already have that with blind spot detection where the light glows in your, in your side view mirror. But, you know, you, if you, when you're talking about at the large scale, if, if you, if every car in America would automatically break when they can, when they detect, you know, that, that something is coming into your, your lane, you know, the, the number of lives lost, I, I think that the number of vehicle fatalities, it, it's somewhere around 35,000, 40,000. Uh, a year, you know that that's that that that's meaningful, you know, that, and that's that's important for 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 anyone who's managing a, a a vehicle fleet, and so you know cars or vehicles like like Aptera that are building that in, I think they're I think they're they're setting themselves up for for being being part of that. Um, I, I think that's you know long term as its technology advances. I I think that's the if 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 the other performance advantages weren't death knells to the ICE vehicle, the autonomy component is 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 really because you can't do an autonomous uh, combustion engine vehicle. It it'll you know it'll wear down. It won't work. It it won't it won't last. You can't lend that out and and drive you know an extra fifty thousand sixty thousand miles a year. The 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 car will be dead. Um, and selfishly, as someone who's biased for Raptor, I I think that's what. That's what makes them, I think, gives them the the 
the the bright future you know if if not with this this roadster with their future models or go ahead so yeah chris i, I i'm curious about you know how you view like let's say aptera really takes off as a company and their you know platform um becomes as as widely adopted or or more widely adopted than you know what a tesla looks like or you know a lot of the or or they leapfrog a lot of the legacy car manufacturers what does that look like how does that business model start where um where do you see that kind of inflection point and tipping point taking off from is it is it the early adopter you know um consumers like rich urban people who are um conscious of those kinds of things or is it you know where where are those tipping points really going to come from i think initially i think there's so there's they're looking at they're close to around 11,000 pre-orders. So th- there's not a huge number of, of cars. I think Cybertruck alone has maybe like a million pre-orders. I think I saw that the Ford F-150 Lightning might be under 200,000. It, it might actually be more than that. It, it's, people are interested in, in, in these cars. And so, you know, in a way that, you know, the Aptera amount seems a lot more more modest. And it, it, it does it's not going to require because, in part because they're so e- efficiently made, they're actually their their capital costs are much lower and so they don't need you know to the same sort of of, of revenue coming in that other um, electric vehicle startups are going to require to to get going they don't need to have that same price point which actually you know at twenty five thousand nine hundred dollars actually makes it makes it far more accessible to a lot of more lower income consumers and if they get access to any electric vehicle tax credits that's going to reduce the cost even more, and so it is going to be an early adopter um, to to start off with. But if they can if they can get a regular stream of of people for this this roadster, what's what I think is going to happen for them is is their their next vehicles are going to be the ones that that are are, are really going to be its mark. You know, there's they're planning a a more traditional four wheeled version that would be closer to a sedan that a large number of people that, that aren't just going for two-seaters are going to be able to get in. But then they're also talking about other more, I think, maybe more utilitarian vehicles that could be used as, as delivery vehicles. And you, you talk about an autonomous, hyper-efficient truck. You know, the reason why you mentioned the large, large corporate companies, the reason why Amazon, you know, bought all of those Rivian trucks is because they ran the numbers and and they went yeah you know EV is going to save us this amount of money, and if if at some point Aptera five years four years from now has something that can can transport packages and has a coefficient a drag coefficient that's a twenty five percent you know of of what the the Rivian truck is FedEx and everyone's going to look at that and go they they're going to run the numbers real quick. They're gonna, you know, their solar gonna be integrated in it, so they don't need to upgrade, you know, put charging stations on. And I, I think, I think that's where you're gonna, you're gonna see them really, really take off. Be, and it's because they're starting with efficiency now. It, I, I don't think other companies can, are gonna be able to transition to it. Um, Tesla has the most efficient, most from a coefficient of drag standpoint, EV right now. I think it's 0.23, which is double what the Aptera is just about um, lucid is also around there again about double mercedes has 
an absolutely stunning sedan again about double and there are these people who are realizing these these gains but like you you, you can't you can't it's not like a, a, a cars aren't like houses where you can just add new installation and make it net zero you need to design it from the ground up and i think that that leaves aptera completely alone in the market as the only one whose whose whole focus is literally saves the company money and saves the consumer money in a way that no one else can and as costs come down it, it's going to be the cheapest it's, it's just going to be the cheapest to, to run and maintain with the, with the best performance and that that's that's where i see again as a biased aptera podcast running person like ah, yeah, i i see the future is bright the future is is, is bright but it, yeah i think it's i think they're they're utility vehicles I, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what you're seeing now, <clears throat> the leg- legacy car manufacturers doing is treating those electric vehicle powertrains and chassis as a platform and adding, you know, whatever modular, um, whether it's like a crossover SUV or it's a sedan or it's, a, you know, whatever that is, uh, the uses on top. But they're, but they're having to redesign all of that. And what Aptera it seems like to me has an advantage of is no, they designed it to be modular from the beginning. And so, I mean, I think that's a huge, tremendous advantage for them in the marketplace. Um, it's fascinating. I didn't realize that that 25 K number, um, was without the electric vehicle tax credits. I think one thing that, um, should be considered from a public policy perspective, that would be really interesting is, is there another class of electric vehicle tax credits, um, for uh, self-generating and self, um, uh, self self-replenishing electric vehicles, because that's obviously there's a there's a public policy interest in alleviating um, you know the the requirements from the grid uh, and everything like that associated with it. I think those are things that um, are very should be very interesting um, to states and cities. Uh, that are sort of progressive and forward leaning on this um, and, and maybe possibly even federally, you know, the Biden administration is talking about doubling um, the uh, electric vehicle tax credit. Um, and should there be different classes, including, you know, we're, we're ones that can self-generate their own fuel. It, I, I would say you, you, that is a, an avid topic that, that I see among the, the Apteraverse you know, on both the Twitter sphere and, on, and in the comments, where that people are very loudly speculating, you know, if, if we're incentivizing clean energy vehicles, you know, because there are obvious advantages, should we not have more incentives for, for vehicles that are going to save everybody? But, you know, the, the Aptera user is going to use less resources by definition than, than any other, you know, a, a car owner in America or, or around the world. You know, there's, there's, if, if every car, this is not going to happen, they don't have the manufacturing, but if, you know, if every car in, in America was, was an Aptera, there would not be the need for 500,000 fast chargers. We, we would just, we would have the infrastructure that would be fine. You know, there, we, we wouldn't need to, to, you know, figure out, you know, is Aptera going to have access to the, the Tesla supercharger network? It doesn't really matter, you know, because for most people, you know, they, they're going to leave it out in the sun. I looked it up even in, in cloudy New York City. With the full solar package, I'd be looking at around 20, 22 miles a day um, out here in New York City. Um, you know, I, 
you know, if, if I'm commuting, you know, how many people drive less than than 20 miles a, a day? If I if I park it outside, you know, that's it, that there's like there's such as value for for the urban consumer. But then I really think anyone who lives in a more rural area, um, who who where you have to travel uh, longer distances, that efficiency is going to be be more important. The the ruggedness is going to be important. And also, they're going to have more opportunities to just kind of leave it outside and 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 let it, you know. It's like, oh, you know, the battery in my my Aptera died. Well, I just left it there for eight hours, and then I and then I I was able to to drive like another like you know 50 miles home. Like that's 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 the wild stuff that that I think is is the potential there. That's really interesting because you know one of the conversations right now that's active uh, among the folks who are working on this issue is what do we do about rural communities? And one of the real challenges is, you know, uh, there's a belief that uh, folks in rural communities aren't gonna wanna charge in, in public areas. Um, and, and they're gonna be much more focused on um, residential charging. And your point is, great, that's, Aptera uh, makes a car that is ideal from a residential charging standpoint because you don't need, you may not even need to plug it in. And so I think that's um, something that, again, another another public policy incentive that we should be um, conscious of as we're crafting, you know, this transformation to the transportation sector, um, that we should be identifying the right, you know, vehicle for the right situation. Right. That, that's, that's exactly right. You know, if, if you're, there's a, there's such a wide range of communities right now that I think are, are they're trying to do the right thing. You know, people are waking up to the idea of clean energy transition and the environment and they're, they're sitting there planning, they're going, ah, oh, you know, what can I do? And, and I think a lot of them, they look and they go, well, you know, we should be promoting electric vehicles. And then I imagine someone comes along and goes like, all right, well, you're going to have to add the equivalent, you know, charging capacity of, of a small hospital to your, your town that does not have a small hospital. And I imagine that that's a really hard, that, that, that's a hard sell. And alternatively, you go like, well, you know, there, there's this vehicle where, you know, that this is, you know, the existing infrastructure can can accommodate it. I, I want to 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 wrap up the, the conversation, you know, to get your thoughts on some ideas on what do you see the the, you know, the what really excites you about the future in general? about you know not just aptera but electric vehicles with with the department of defense and and different state entities municipalities agencies utilities anyone you've been you've been speaking with i think it's that you know that coupling between the electric sector and the transportation sector um is it it is you know somewhat challenging it's gonna there are unquestioned challenges around the issues that I work in around resilience and security, but there are so many opportunities and uh, electric vehicle electrification can really be a catalyst for the kinds of changes to the electric sector um, that we so sorely need. Um, we're decarbonizing, we're reducing um, the pollution around cities, we're also creating those those new value streams that we don't have today. We're also creating all of the kinds of incentives around localized control and localized capability for the electric grid in, in like I mentioned, neighborhoods 
um, and and sectors of cities. Um, from a, it, it just makes too much sense not to happen, as you talked about, um, and it's going to require. Um, again, a reimagining of our relationship to our cars and to our personal transportation. But I think if we think about it the right way, that can be incredibly empowering rather than, um, rather than challenging. And so what excites me is seeing that future, you mentioned Minority Report, but seeing that future um, where we can have those kinds of experiences where I can just get where I am to where I want to go totally seamlessly um, and, and do it in a way that is zero carbon, that helps strengthen the resilience and security of the electric grid, that helps um, in places like California where we're experiencing public safety power shutoffs and power disruptions that actually um, helps us maintain the capability to charge our phones, to um, stay in contact with emergency services to do all the things that we need to do to survive, um, that electric vehicles can be a, a tremendous tool for that in the future. And I think that's what's exciting to me. I think that's a, that's a, a great optimistic way to, to, to wrap, wrap things up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful as, I'm hopeful as well. You know, I, I think it's like, we have an obligation to, to figure this out, but the, the, the potential, I look forward to a future where you know 20 years from now 30 years from now kids are growing up and they're going oh, it's crazy that everyone drove around those those vehicles that that couldn't drive themselves that if you if you lost uh, you know section or your attention for a few seconds you could really hurt somebody and and literally spew toxic fumes in into the air worldwide you know there's there was an announcement that the last i think leaded gasoline station was just um, shut down and we're all out here like i can't believe people are putting lead in their gasoline and and i hope i hope we get there with with the internal combustion engine as well michael Wu, principal co-founder of converge strategies you can you can find the website at convergestrategies.com also the executive director of the the rise consortium um thank you so much for for coming on you've been a fantastic guest i i can say unequivocally the best guest the apt evs podcast has ever ever had uh, it, absolutely fantastic thank you so much for for joining thanks my friend it's been an honor and that concludes episode 27 of the apt evs podcast i hope that you found this episode and this conversation interesting and as always thank you for listening if you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend so that we can continue to grow the Aptera movement. The Apt EVs podcast is available on most podcasting, or I guess all the, the big podcasting platforms, Anchor FM, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or feedback, including corrections, please send those to aptevspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at apt underscore EVs podcast. You can also send me audio messages through the, the podcasting website, either on mobile or through a desktop application. If you really like the episode, you can also use my $30 discount code for your reservation, the $100 refundable deposit. I will include the link to that in the show notes, and you can also find that on my Twitter page. 
Thank you to OS50 for the song Movies and in the words of Jeff Kanata, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. 